As I sat down to prepare for today, my phone buzzed. And it had buzzed to alert me to the important news that Harvey Weinstein had been found guilty of two acts of just dreadful behavior. And here's what struck me about that. That someone in London who works for the BBC decided that that information was so important that I needed to be alerted to it within five minutes of the verdict. It blows my mind that something like that could be considered that important to anybody. But what we can all acknowledge is that when anything of cultural significance is occurring, we live in a time when that information is pushed at us with great haste. We need to know about it. It's very important. You need to know about this now. Clearly, something that is culturally significant isn't necessarily important to us as Christians. Throughout all of history, certain events mean more to some groups of people than to others. But as Christians, what's supposed to be important to us? What's more important to us than to an unbelieving world? Today, as we look at the second half of Mark chapter 13, we will be asking just one question. What's important in this passage to us as Christians? Was there anything Jesus was telling his disciples at this crucial time in his life that should be important to every single Christian every single day? That's the question we'll attempt to answer from this passage. As anyone who has studied scripture for any length of time, if you were to ask them, give me a list of the three most difficult passages in scripture, chances are this passage will be on it. In my life, personally, whenever I read anything in scripture that is tough for me to wrap my head around, I have a go-to thing, all of us do. Right? For me, it's I'm digging into the Greek. I want to understand everything that I can possibly understand about this text. I try to ignore everything that I've ever heard, and I just get into the text, and I let the text do the talking. And here's what has typically happened over my life. I wind up with a bigger pile of information, but not necessarily more understanding. These days, the more difficult a passage is, the more I search for simplicity. When I was in school, I heard a quote from Einstein. And it has struck me and it stuck with me through all the years. Out of clutter, find simplicity. Out of discord, find harmony. Einstein himself was brilliant at that. And John showed us this graphic last week and rightly pointed out that there is far more disagreement concerning Mark chapter 13 over the centuries than there is harmony. Is it possible to find simplicity out of all of this clutter or disagreement? Can there possibly be one important takeaway 
that we as Christians can rally around in this passage, and I believe that there is. Let's look at our text. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Mark 13 and, and all of your scripture. I thank you for the praise and worship band today and the songs that they selected and how um, Mitch strives each week to find songs that reinforce the text that we will be addressing. I'm grateful for that and I'm grateful for this chance to speak to this passage and I pray that you will be honored by the words for I pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Jesus is telling his disciples about future events. The destruction of Jerusalem in verses 1 through 23, and his second coming in the verses that we just read. Over time, folks have argued whether Jesus was speaking of a single event or two events. Was it a single event in two acts, somewhat like a play, or two separate, distinct events? A local, escapable judgment that was coming to Jerusalem and then a subsequent worldwide inescapable event that was going to be the judgment that would accompany his second coming. Now, folks have been choosing sides over this since the ascension. And sadly, not even Einstein's advice have I been able to come up with something as simple and elegant as E equals MC squared to just resolve all of this and we can all go home and go, yep, that's it, we got it. Simply not the case. The Olivet Discourse is included in three of the Gospels. Matthew and Luke also include this. And as I've noted and John has noted in many times in the past, these different Gospel writers were addressing different audiences, which generally speaking accounted for the different ways in which they might have handled particular events that were in Jesus' life. 
I say typically because in this particular case, it's not entirely the way it goes because they are remarkably similar. All three accounts are similar in structure and content. Each begins with Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and then that he will return. All three include the lesson of the fig tree and all three state quite emphatically that no one, not even Jesus himself, knew exactly when all this was going to happen. Only the Father. But thankfully for us this morning, all three end a little differently. And that for me was instructive and I think important for us to look at. Verse 24 jumps right in, but in those days after that tribulation, what tribulation? The tribulation of speaking to the destruction of Jerusalem that John covered last week. The sun will darken, the moon won't shine, the stars will fall from the sky, all of heaven will be shaken, and then the Son of Man will appear. What Jesus is describing here are the events that will accompany his return. In, in addition to all the cosmic disturbances that he's described, many believe Jesus is describing the events that will coincide with something that's called the rapture. There are three aspects to his coming again, which is referred to also as the day of the Lord. There are three elements to it. There's his return, that kicks it off. There's this thing called the rapture. And then there's another thing called his millennial reign. Now, Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, expands upon what we find in verse 27. And many believe, myself included, that the rapture will occur at the moment that Jesus returns. Look with me and see how Paul seems to give details about verse 27. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a command of cry, uh, a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, it is believed that Paul wrote the book of First Thess Thessalonians around 50 A.D., so stick with me here on the timeline because it's pretty important, right? That's 15 to 20 years after Jesus spoke these words that we have recorded in Mark 13. Okay? It is understandable that Paul would include at the very end of that, because let's face it, that's some pretty fantastic stuff. Right? Caught together in the air, boom, you know, there's been movies done about it. It's a pretty fantastic thing. But it's, in, it's understandable to me that he would finish that with encourage one another with these words. Because why? Well, because 15 or 20 years had passed since the people who were alive had heard Jesus say these things are going to happen. Now, today, 2,000 years later, we know a lot more than Paul knew at the time or, and any of them at the time, right? For one thing, we know that Jerusalem eventually does get taken down 20 more years later. It's still another 20 years out. But what about the millennial reign that John would talk? He wouldn't write about that until the book of Revelations, which is subsequent to even the destruction of Jerusalem. This is where Einstein's advice is sound advice, in my opinion, and we should seek simplicity and harmony when opinions are cluttered and confusing. One undisputed aspect 
in all of this is that Jesus is coming back. All Orthodox Christians agree that one day Jesus will return, and we all look forward to that. But throughout Christianity, we just got to be honest about this, that's where the agreement ends. Theories and convictions about when he will return and what will happen when he returns have differed amongst theologians and denominations for as long as Christianity has existed. If you're not familiar with this thing called the millennial reign, there are three predominant and competing positions concerning Jesus' return and this reign. Okay? They're referred to as amillennial, premillennial, and postmillennial. Okay? Now, this is a very busy Sunday. <laughs> I can tell you that it took our K group two solid weeks to pound out amillennial, premillennial, and postmillennial. Not going to happen this morning. I know you can all believe a sigh of, of relief there. I'm just going to mention these to continue to convey the extent of the discord and disagreement among Christians concerning this return and reign. And if that weren't enough, there are also the four different theological lenses that tend, people tend to look at when they're interpreting scripture. I'm just going to mention them. It's idealistic, which is also sometimes referred to as symbolic. Then there's futuristic, historistic, and preterists, which are just listed up here because these are all fascinating things to some of us. But here's the thing about each one of those topics. The deeper you dig, the deeper the hole gets. There's never a bottom to it, ever. I mean, that's one of the wonders of all the scripture. And when there's not a lot of competing and disagreement, that's a really wonderful thing because we talk about the unsearchable riches of scripture. That you just, it, it's completely unfathomable that no matter how many times you read it, it's fresh every single time. It's just really remarkable. But when, when there's not a universal consensus, then you look for simplicity. You look for where, the, where there's some harmony and where we can agree. So the only thing that seems to be clear about all of this is that there's very little that's very clear about all of this, right? And so the lesson of the fig tree only seems to add to some of that confusion. In verse 28, Jesus shares a parable concerning a fig tree, and when the fig tree breaks out in leaf, you know that summer is near. It begins with a statement that almost everyone then and everyone now can get it. We can get it, yes, when the fig, when we all love it. Matter of fact, we're all looking forward to it right now. It's been a couple, little bit cool right now. And when the, when the branches start to break out into, into fresh growth, and, and, and you, what, what do we know? Oh, well, warmer days are ahead, right? It's going to be good. But then he throws in verse 30. Verse 30 is another center of great debate. Because truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, for what it's worth, this verse has never troubled me. It either relates back to the destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in less than 40 years after Jesus spoke those words, which, by the way, is the duration of a generation. So it's either that generation or it's the generation that's around when he returns. In either case, it's the generation, as far as I can see, that's around when he, it, when he spoke the event as was, was occurring. So pick your event or pick your side. I really have never. It's, it's one of those that gives some people great. It disturbs them greatly. It gives them great trouble. 
I just had, I just never had had that issue. It's one of those simplicity and clutter kind of things for me. You know, I'm good with it either way. And after declaring in plain language that no one, including himself, knows when all these things will happen, Jesus offers an illustration. And this is where I'm hoping we can all have that one important simplicity kind of takeaway that can matter to us every day, not worrying whether it's going to be today's the day for the day of the Lord, just every day, what do you do? So he's declared in plain language, I don't even know when this is going to happen, and Jesus does what he always does. He offers us an illustration. Look with me again at verses 34 through 37. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, for me personally, stay awake. Eh, it could be stay alert. I like stay alert. You know, stay on top of it. Don't get lazy. This is not the first time that Jesus has used an illustration of a master going on a journey and leaving his servants behind to tend to the matters in his absence. The parable of the talents comes immediately to mind. Jesus has repeatedly made clear that he was going to be going away. And he expected his followers to carry on his work while he was away. Hence, the number of parables, the number of illustrations that he made. Now look with me at what Luke has to say. Luke adds in chapter 21, verse 34, Jesus also said, to watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Okay, I had to even look up dissipation, okay? Not a word, we're not using that word every day, and if you use it, you've got way more vocabulary than I've ever had. It means headaches. Now think about it. Mark says stay alert. Do the work that I've set. Luke adds, we should not get too entangled in the cares or the headaches of this life. That those cares and headaches, he actually adds at the end of the verse, are a trap. Simplicity and harmony seems to be coming into focus. Matthew takes it even further. In chapter 24, verse 48, it reads, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. Okay. Remember the part about put a list of put a list together of passages that are difficult passages and a little bit disturbing. This one for me, every time I read this, it gives me pause. 
while away, Jesus is making it very clear to his disciples that, re that they remain alert, not too entangled in the cares of this life. And don't miss this. Busy and focused doing the things he commanded. Jesus, set the scene right now, because we tend to lose focus of this. Jesus is literally hours away from a horrible death. He knows that. These are the things he's choosing to share with his disciples. Why does he have to go to that death? A death made necessary by our failure to live up to what God expects from us. He's explaining to his faithful that there are things that are going to happen in the future. He's explaining it to the ones that are sitting there right then and to us today. That there are things that are going to happen and I want you to know that. This is what was on his mind hours from the cross. This is not something that he came up with and was sharing with them a few, a few years beforehand. This is hours away. We discussed this somewhat uh, in Monday at, at our pastor's meeting. When, when Jesus said these things, like I said earlier, the destruction of Jerusalem, still 40 years out. During those 40 years, nearly the entire New Testament was written. What was everybody doing during those 40 years? See, that's the question that I ask. Because we're looking back at all of it, but the people who were living it right then and there, what was this? This was unfolding in their lives day by day. And I think what they were doing is quite clear. Look with me at verse 34. It tells us that each with their work. Same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 2.10. Where it reads, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Same word. Which God prepared when? Beforehand that we should walk in them. You cannot read the book of Acts without understanding what that work was. You simply can't. They were busy living out their faith. They were busy working out their faith. Staying alert, busy doing what Jesus had commanded. When the Romans came to level Jerusalem, what did they do? They remembered what Jesus said and did what? They headed for the hills, which was just the exact the opposite. Just like John said last week, the tendency was run into the city. What did they do? They did what Jesus told them to do, and they remembered it some 40, yard, 40 years later. Are you sensing a theme here? Eschatology, or the study of end times, is undeniably fascinating to some people. Regardless of how you feel about what will happen or when Jesus returns or when it'll happen, there's one indisputable, clear as a bell fact that every Christian can know, and that is that Jesus expects us to stay focused on what he commanded 
and being about doing the things that he personally, he personally prepared for each one of us to do. That's exactly how we can live out today what our counterparts in the first century lived. No difference. We talk about it last year a great bit, and we're going to continue to talk about it. Loving your neighbor. What are you going to do? How's your faith impacting your relationship with the people who live around you? Is it even part of the equation as your, of your daily life? Not too entangled in the things in this world that it has to offer. And let's be honest, it has a lot of really cool things to offer. I mean, to, to deny that would be silly. you got to give the devil his due when it's due. And he has put an awful lot of stuff out there to keep the body of Christ distracted. Not to get weary. Not to be discouraged. When things start not going well... I mean, let's face it, we can get weary in well-doing. That's one of the reasons why we have a verse for that. Alert and doing the good work he, Jesus, personally prepared for us beforehand right up until the very second he returns. That is my simple, harmonious takeaway, which is important to me and I pray that it's also important to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage, and I thank you for your patience with us when we fail you and um, have difficulty staying focused on the tasks that you have prepared for us. And I'm grateful that you did that, that you knew exactly who would be here today and who is going to be hearing your word every single day since the day you spoke these words. I'm grateful for your word. I pray that you are honored by its preaching today. I pray I ask it all in Jesus' name.